we, you can conceive of Brexit in two ways. Number one is you can see it as a negotiation between the UK and the EU to reverse a series of treaties, principally on trade and movement of people. Or you can see it as Britain's existential crisis taking geopolitical form. And that existential crisis really has been going on since 1945. So, everyone, ladies and gents, um, this week it's just myself here and Julian will be doing this bonus episode because I think there's a lot of kind of issues that go through our racket, so to speak, when we do kind of only one topic a week quite in depth. And there's a few things we want to talk about the past few weeks. And one is kind of a kind of general conversation on, on Ukraine. Um, we'll be doing quite a few episodes coming the next few weeks on Ukraine, but I don't think we've covered the situation in Ukraine since basically the, um, the week following the invasion, actually, uh, quite a few weeks ago. And on top of that, I think we, since June is here as well, we might as well do something on distrust and her and the Conservative Party's woes right now and their predicted basically electoral wipeout if nothing changes over the next few months. So we'll be definitely dealing into that. Jorge, unfortunately, couldn't make it, um, but he should be coming back in future episodes. Um, so before we get into the whole um, kind of Ukraine conversation, I think there's a few topics we want to talk about. I think how the conversation in Europe has changed. Um, the kind of is there a landing zone for peace in the in a reasonable short term future, and and also I think a bit of, bit of a stretch in in Russia how um, it has become very uncomfortable for Putin. Before we do this, I think um, Julian, I'm going to put you to the test. Can you do a bit of a one minute summary for me of the past eight months of conflict in Ukraine, starting now? Yeah, thank, thank you, Francois. This, this is an easy one. Um, so obviously, when we last spoke about Ukraine, Russia had not yet invaded, and we made predictions on whether they would. They subsequently did invade on the 24th of February, and made some initial advances in the south and east of the country and in the north towards Kiev. And there were concerns that President Volodymyr Zelensky was going to be mm. captured and taken to Moscow for trial and probably execution. Um, he famously said, I need ammunition, not a ride, when the US offered to fly him out of Kyiv. Um, the Ukrainians ended up rebuffing that Russian attack in the north uh, and in the northeast of the country, uh, settling into a new phase of war in which Russia made steady gains in the east of Ukraine. Um, I'm glossing over a lot of individual assaults, but mostly because I want to get to the main events that began in September when Ukraine started signaling that they were going to launch a massive counterattack in the south of the country and then launched a massive counterattack in the northeast of the country, rolling back the Russians and have continued to make gains in the northeast and in the south. And then a few days ago, a, bl a bridge in Crimea got blown up. And now there are missile strikes being launched against the rest of Ukraine by the Russians. And that's pretty much everything that's happened, um, give or take a few major moments and uh, war crimes committed by the Russians. Since. Wow, congratulations. I think it was a bit more than a minute, but that was, that was phenomenal. Um, just uh, we're not we're not military experts by any means here, so I'm, I'm not sure we're going to focus too much on the military aspect of it. But I have to say, um, I've been following this channel on YouTube called World War Two, and they follow the events of World War Two week by week, um, eight years later, basically. And it is incredibly unsettling to see basically the same places, the same rivers, the same villages, same towns 
being fought over 80 years apart. I mean, you know, if you... Right now, the last episode that was released was about could Crimea be isolated? Um, just kind of... The timeline's collapsing here. It's just so, so interesting here. But the offensive they ran this September, I think it's going to be like in, you know, in it's going to be in, in history books. It's going to be in military books, of course, because it is a, a case of incredible deception, incredible strategic thinking, um, pretending you're going to attack South, um, hitting, hitting the South with tons of artillery to make that threat credible, have plenty of Russian troops pour into the uh, basically island of Kherson in the south to, to prepare for a potential attack, which never happens because the attack is now in the weakened uh, northeast. Uh, make considerable gains in army administration where you have thousands of troops in Kherson who are basically stuck. Their supply lines are stretched dangerously thin. Um, and you know, on top of that, you get a completely demobilized Russian army that is progressively losing. We kind of well, never really had that energy, but is losing even more of the energy you had um, as the war continues. So it's, it's um, and now the, the next step, I think, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not a strategist. I've, my, my experience limits itself to playing a lot of the Age of Empires online. But um, uh, at some point, you do, you do start to think whether a kind of proper push to the south, cutting the Crimean pocket and Kherson from the rest of Russian territories is feasible. Now, my understanding is the winter will make things a lot harder for kind of rapid attacks. Um, it's going to be a little more rainy. There's a lot of marshes. Um, so it might be difficult. But at this point, you know, you look at a map and the next move seems quite quite uh, easy to imagine. Um, yeah, any thoughts, Julian, before we move on? The... Next phase, it will be interesting to see what gains Ukraine can make in the next two to three weeks. We've seen Russia respond with more attacks on civilian areas, although, you know, you referenced the Second World War. The Second World War shows us that actually a lot of attacks on civilian areas are ineffective in the course of a military campaign. The German bombing of Britain didn't work and the Britain bombing of Germany didn't really work. Um, so it's highly doubtful that Russia's indiscriminate missile attacks on Ukrainian civilian centers will have the same effect. And they didn't in the start of the war, and they likely won't now, especially now that Ukraine is on the march. Uh, in terms of the military gains that Ukraine will look to sort of lock in, it really it comes down to a question of, will the Russians retreat in the areas where they still can retreat? And if not, will the Ukrainians be able to surround and force a force a surrender. Um, this would be uh, probably the largest defeat. Um, I'm going to get all my geography wrong but at, and pronunciations wrong, but at Kherson especially, if they can force a surrender of Russian yeah. forces there, that would be one of the largest defeats that the Russians have suffered so far in this war that they started. Yeah, two things about you. Very good point, actually, on the bombing of Kiev and how, you know, bombing of, of major cities and you know, basically hitting at civilians has been... Um, counterproductive, or at least not productive, during World War Two. I think there's, there's 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 also one aspect which we have to consider is the signalling aspect. One at home, you have a population which is growing frustrated by the lack of tactical success on the Russian side, um, especially especially those people who are to the right of Putin who have a much more maximalist agenda. 
um, you have to show them that you're you're hitting back. You have also to kind of um, increase the cost of such shooter sabotage in the future. I think that's the idea here. Um, and there's also some kind of signaling for an international audience, which is if um, if things get bad, I will I will hit um, indiscriminately civilian targets. And he wants to show he has the tactical capacity to hit Kiev, but he also wants to show he has the, the will to do so. And in the conversation we're having about nuclear weapons at the moment, I think that kind of signaling is not lost on, on anyone at the moment. Yes, the, the nuclear question is one that's coming up uh, increasingly and it's somewhat alarming to me the fact that what's sort of lost in this conversation is what the Western response would be to the use of a nuclear weapon. It's sort of talking about, you know, is this a bluff or isn't it a bluff? But really the, the conversation to sort of, at least from my perspective, emphasize the risks of the deployment of nuclear weapons, whether it is a tactical nuke or a low yield strategic weapon in the conflict in Ukraine, we really need to talk about what the Western response would be to emphasize the potential risks, not only to the people of Ukraine and Russia and all of Eastern Europe, but really to the planet as a whole, should that conflict escalate into a nuclear dimension. I was reading actually, um, Demir Marusic had, has written a very interesting article on the question of, um, um, among other things, nuclear escalation in Ukraine. And there's a lot of good points here. And he um, he talks a lot about an article Walter, Walter Russell Mead wrote in the Wall Street Journal, where he's quite tough on Biden, saying that um, Biden has not been forceful enough in highlighting the possibility of war in Ukraine eight months ago. Um, now he's paying the price for it, and he should have been deploying troops on the eastern borders of NATO even before the conflict, You know, signaling that America was ready to fight. Um, now, obviously, that strategy would have had downsides, which is it would have created a lot of tension with Europe. Because let's not forget, Europeans, most Europeans, were convinced that there would not be a conflict. Uh, and that um, this was bluff, this was kind of a, a way for Putin to... to get more leverage um, and so Biden by putting troops on the eastern border of NATO would have simply created more tension and then down the road who knows maybe the Europeans would have blamed it on the Americans for escalating the situation um, so Walter Ross and essentially is arguing that at this point Putin uh, sorry Biden needs to be um, amping the stakes he needs to be having kind of big summits, he needs to be talking about nuclear war, he needs to be showing that this is a real possibility, and that he, you know, and also kind of threaten undisclosed um, counterattacks if Russia should go nuclear. Now again, we come back to the kind of dilemma we I was talking about a few seconds ago, the Europeans would hate it, because obviously they would be the battleground, so to speak. Um, but there's a real dilemma here on the response from Biden on whether or not he should, you know, um, escalate the rhetoric as well and signal to Putin that a nuclear escalation would be incredibly costly. So I have to push back on that argument um, in part because it's not, the president shouldn't be the one making those claims in public because when the president says it, it becomes policy. Mm. 
And you've seen this with Biden repeatedly. You know, he warned of nuclear Armageddon and suddenly everyone got very alarmist about it. Um, the president should not be the one making those comments. That's the role of his national security team. And it has been what the current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, has been making clear. And the CIA director, William Burns, who for a time had served in Moscow, um, they have been making clear to their Russian counterparts what the US response would be to the use of a nuclear weapon. And the second thing, you know, in terms of the original argument of the US should deploy those troops uh, in Eastern Europe, and maybe Poland and Estonia would have welcomed them. But again, to your point, Europe would have probably been more susceptible to the argument that the US instigated this conflict by threatening Russia in its quote unquote sphere of influence. Um, the US strategy of continuously warning and providing intelligence briefings and then being affirmed that it was right has actually strengthened that European coalition against Russia at a time when most American intelligence analysts, if you asked them off the record what they thought of, say, Germany or Austria, they would describe them as outposts of the Russian security <laughs> services. Um, so the, the US strategy actually has been quite effective. And I think on the nuclear front, it should remain the role of those senior security officials to make those subtler warnings to the Russians and to the press because the continuous, you know, if Biden says it, it is in of itself an escalation in the war of words between Russia and the United States and increases the probability of an actual war between Russia and the United States. Yeah. And um, to come back to, to Europe a little here, um, now what, what Rosa Rosa Mead will say is the lack of escalation in the first place by America gave a green light to Russia to invade because they thought there would be limited consequences and, and, and also because if they didn't think, for example, the Europeans would be so much on board in the retaliation, especially with sanctions. And that kind of leads me on to, I think, a very important conversation. I think one, we are more um, comfortable with, we know better rather than uh, military successes, is the kind of conversation we've been having in Europe for the past few, few, few months. Because if we're going to do kind of a brief history of the EU, the EU has been kind of rocked by a series of crises. First one is 2008. Um, the second one is the refugee crisis. Um, the third one is Brexit. The fourth one is COVID. And the fifth one is Ukraine. And I think what is quite interesting is this one, the last one, is very different from the previous ones because there is a very strong geopolitical dimension um, in a way that you wouldn't see in the other crises. And as much as kind of identity questions, immigration had always been kind of a bit of a uh, dead angle, so to speak, of EU thinking, strategic matters had been a complete, complete, um, how can I say, uh, wasteland um, matters of kind of thinking. And the reason I'm saying this is there was this um, speech given actually uh, a few days ago by uh, Jose Borrell, the a representative of the EU on, um, on on the foreign policy. And it's quite remarkable, actually, how self-critical it is. Um, let me quote this aspect. We do not believe that the war was coming. I have to recognise that here in Brussels, the Americans were telling us they will attack, they will attack, and we were quite reluctant to believe it. Um, and 
we've I think I've I've said that many times, you know, the the EU thinks of itself as a vegetarian in the world of carnivores. Not only that, but it's also for a very long time was quite proud of being a, a vegetarian in the world of carnivores. You know, it kind of thought the future would be a world of vegetarians and thought it was kind of um, you know, leading the trend, so to speak. Um and what what this has mean is kind of interesting because it has shifted the balance of power within Europe um, away from the east and the west, away from the west to the east. Nowadays, we have countries like Poland, like uh, Lithuania, driving the conversation a lot more than France and, and Germany. Obviously, the, the France and Germany remain, remain the most important actors within the EU. But in many ways, it feels like they will be you know, they're completely sidelined. Um, I have this very interesting quote, actually, from um, the Latvian deputy PM from this summer. He was talking about Macron's explicit need for... Sorry, not Macron, but he was talking about the explicit need for self-humiliation after talking about Macron. So, I mean, the, the, the jab is quite it's quite quite clear here. And, um, I mean, like, you know, all the criticism about Germany, all of that. And for... Sometimes for unfair reasons, those countries are being blamed for not being on the same page as the rest of Europe on being kind of a united France against Russia. And um, I mean, the balance of power is completely shifted. It's incredible. So I've never seen Germany do so much kind of self-criticism on, on, its, on its policy for, 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 for decades. It's, it's, it's quite straggling, actually. There's also... a uh an ironic twist of Germany um, for years have been the disciplinary and mm. encouraging countries to be self-sufficient in their economics. And because of their over-dependence on Russian energy and a strategic vulnerability that stems from the peace through trade approach and the hospital politic approach that the German foreign policy establishment had been pushing is now or has been consistently in the spotlight as a reluctant ally of Ukraine in its fight against Russia, whether it's through the failure to provide military weapons in a timely manner. Although again, some military analysts would argue, do you really want German military weapons considering the yeah. historic struggles of the defense ministry in the Bundeswehr to actually supply weapons to their own troops, let alone to allies at war. And I think some of this, some of it, it does feel a little bit like twisting the knife um, to prove a point to Germany and some of the criticism that they have received. But there's also been an error, I think, on the part of um, the leaders, and it's been a consistent criticism of Olaf Scholz in his communications approach, is that he hasn't really communicated in a way that Chancellor Merkel at least seemed able to do, although some people might disagree with that what Germany wants to do, what its position is, and what it's hoping for. You know, people can criticize President Macron for opining on, you know, the need not to humiliate Russia in this war and for trying to push, push for a peaceful solution. But at least you understand what it is President Macron is looking for and what France is looking to do. Germany hasn't mm. really articulated that. And there is a tension, which um, I'm sure you'll be able to speak to, in terms of the role of Olaf Scholz as chancellor, while the commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, also a German, is in many ways uh, leading a lot of the collective European response to Russia. Well, obviously they're not, they're not um, how can I say, 
um, they have different electorates, so to speak. Olaf Scholz is here to defend German people, and Ursula von der Leyen is a response to the European Union, the institution, and especially the heads of state. So it's it's obviously not going to be the same, um, uh, the same reactions, and and also Ursula von der Leyen is a former defense minister, so that probably creates a bit of a bias as well in your in your response. Yeah, not maybe good... not a good one. Um, I I just want to go back a little bit to because France and Germany have been bundled together on this, and I think it's maybe unfair, but more than unfair, I think it's very unfortunate for France because. The pivot away from economic questions, which has been the bread and butter of the European Union for decades, to security matters, should have been France's great moment of consecration on the European stage. Because if there was one area in France had undeniable expertise, and probably more than any other European countries, it's really on security. And, and we missed it. First of all, we missed it because we didn't believe an invasion was possible. We made a kind of very rational assessment of Russia's capacities and we decided it wasn't going to happen because the risk was just too high and there was no way we could actually invade Ukraine. We were right, but because we were right, we, we were wrong. Um, Putin did invade for other reasons. And so our intelligence ended up being um, erroneous. And and as a result, we've been lumped together with Germany as the kind of appeasers, as the people who, who um, want peace at all costs. Um, I, I think it's a little unfair because France does deliver a lot of equipment. Um, the Caesar, Caesar cannons have been uh, a big hit with the Ukraine, so to speak. Um, they're doing very well. They're, I mean, the Ukrainian soldiers are huge fans of the Caesar cannons, so that's that's great for France. Um, but also, France doesn't communicate about this, the, its weapon sales as much as the other European countries. Its tradition is actually be quite secretive about it. So they needed a mind, mind kind of shift on this on this topic which wasn't easy and on top of that you know people were making fun in ukraine and outside of macron's kind of tendency to try and speak and, and talk to putin famously a few days before the invasion um and not getting much out of it but what's quite interesting is zelensky himself used macron as a channel quite clearly and this is this is the line of communication coming from the from the en marche um, politicians and the rest of it, but it is true. Um, Zelensky made it quite clear that he wanted some kind of channel and you thought Macron could be that channel. So um, it's not always clear when Macron decided to do it from his own initiative um, or when he did it with, with Zelensky, but from my understanding, it was mostly in coordination with, with Ukraine. Now, of course, the optics are terrible because the humiliation line just didn't kind of match with the obviously situation on the ground. And it, it just feels like we were... The French were kind of outfoxed. You know, look at the British, who all of a sudden managed to put themselves back on the map um, by the kind of uh, unwavering support to um, to Ukraine, and we look like we were being too subtle. And so, and like, and also, you know, when Boris went to um, Kiev last 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 summer, um, Macron wanted to go a few days later, and obviously couldn't really go. Kind of felt like he would have been um, following um, Boris Johnson's tales, but. I mean, just for kind of the communication optics have been very unfortunate for France, because, again, this should have been France's moment to get a strong position of leadership within the EU, because that is kind of undeniable expertise that no one else could really challenge in Europe. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely. And I think there's 
perhaps an element if we sort of look at, I mean, this could be a whole episode in and of itself, and I want to keep it focused on Europe, but I wonder if there was an element of missing the risk of war because France has a lot of strategic concerns globally, uh, first with its counterterrorism fight in the Sahel, which has not been going particularly well, and with its Indo-Pacific strategy, which led to tension with the United States, um, particularly on intelligence sharing briefly. Um, and you sort of wonder if these global concerns almost distracted the security establishment a little bit and made them a little less confident in some of the actions that France would be taking and has taken to support Ukraine. Um, and in some ways, yes, it has been a missed opportunity for the French, especially with um, Macron in one of the first episodes of this podcast, you talked about strategic yeah. autonomy and how in many ways the greatest supporters of strategic autonomy for the EU are the yeah. French. It is a French initiative. And we had a meeting of the European political community last week, again, a French initiative. And this conflict in Ukraine could really have been the moment that crystallized the thinking and the necessity of those French security initiatives for Europe. Uh, but as you said, that moment was somewhat yeah. missed due to blundered communications. There's, there's one thing as well. If you look back in the rearview mirror, not so long ago, French intelligence had been tremendously successful in identifying that the Afghan regime was going to collapse in a few days. Um, back when the Americans, whether they knew it and decided to hide it for communication reasons, um, or whether they didn't know it, if the Americans said the regime is going to be fine, it's going to hold at least a few months, if not a few years, um, the French left Kabul during the summer because they knew that was going to happen. Um, and so that probably maybe created a bit of complacency. Um, and also because intelligence sometimes, you know, you win some, you lose some, you can't always be spot on. But it's kind of interesting to see that I had predicted Afghanistan so well and uh, failed to do so in, in, in Russia. Just, I'm just going to quickly say on the Afghanistan front, if you want a, a deep dive on the US for that, go to The Atlantic and read George Packer's 87-page mammoth on it. I'm sure it'll be a book at some point. Um, and then there's actually another book on the US thing in Afghanistan. But the US security establishment is pretty big, and a lot of voices were going into that yeah. one. Um, well, we could talk about out for hours on um, on Russia, but let's let's pivot to other topic, which is again, you know, these these bonus allow us to kind of um, go back a bit in the past and kind of cover things we had we we missed because we didn't have time to cover and so on. And I think a remarkable development, because it wasn't so long ago that we had Nick Timothy and Paul Embury on the podcast, and. Um, and we were talking about the, I mean, the, the, the apparent tremendous success that was this kind of new brand of conservatism with Boris Johnson and its helm. Um, and we haven't talked much about the UK proper. We talked about Ireland recently. But we haven't talked much about the kind of English, British political situation. And all of a sudden, it feels like the Conservative Party is on, is on the verge of, of collapse, of existential wipeout, so to speak. I mean, what happened? Well, Brexit yeah. happened. It's the same issue. That's, that's all it is. Well, I disagree um, on this because when we had Paul Embury and Nick Timothy on, 
we had Brexit. I mean, and the negotiations weren't always going very well, um, but we were still still kind of very much in the kind of Brexit moment. Um, is 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 this kind of a, a downstream, going is this on. a downstream effect of Brexit? I mean, so Brexit really, we you can conceive of Brexit in two ways. Number one is you can see it as a negotiation between the UK and the EU to reverse a series of treaties, principally on trade and movement of people. Or you can see it as Britain's existential crisis taking geopolitical form. And that existential crisis really has been going on since 1945, um, when it became clear that Britain was no longer the imperial power on the planet, or at least it became clear to the British that they were no longer the imperial power on the planet. And the debate within the Conservative Party about what Brexit means and what it should be, you have the sort of two pulls on what it should be. So there are those who um, have believed in the sort of Britannia Unchained mm. argument. And this is your Liz Truss, Quasi Quarteng, uh, Steve Baker, um, let's just be Singapore on Thames. Low tax, low regulation, unleash the power of the British economy and innovator and entrepreneur by getting the government out of the way. Um, think of it as sort of, you know, Reaganism mm. plus Thatcherism. Um, and then on the other side, there was Brexit is an opportunity, and this is the Nick Timothy view, for us to bring conservative, like the sort of state conservatism and that working class blue collar conservatism uh, to, country, to the country and level up parts of the UK that have been neglected by the political establishment um, this is the big leveling up agenda. And these two wings of the party have been in constant tension with each other because ultimately parliament sits in Westminster. That's where government is. So leveling up is quite difficult to do. Ironically enough, the person who had the most success in doing it was George Osborne um, with the Northern powerhouse idea. He actually had the most success. Boris Johnson eventually sort of, in part because of a tension span, did, abandoned the leveling up that was so core to his electoral appeal um and now we have the britannia unchained wing of the party is in charge and attempting to reverse the statism that put them in power in 2019 and so you have the inevitable civil war of the conservative party which is the same civil war the conservative party has really every 50 to 100 years i mean this is imperial preference and joseph chamberlain all over again or the corn laws all over again because that was a really interesting kind of um, breakdown of, of a Brexit debate. But let's break down what specifically has meant that the Tories have collapsed, in, at least in polls. And, um, I mean, it's changing over time, but some, some latest polls I've been seeing have Labour roughly between 45 to 50%, and Conservatives in kind of high teens at best, maybe low 20s, um, which in practice means that they would hold best case scenario 100 seats and kind of very uh, catastrophic scenarios 20 seats but i mean elections a long time it, it would mean that people like boris johnson richie sunak kwasi kwateng would all lose their seats i mean this would be kind of a momentous shift um, only a few years after boris johnson had this triumph so what has happened um i think it's fair to say that neither sunak nor trust were incredibly popular uh, options, candidates to lead a Conservative Party. And then you get Liz Truss, who is unveiling in her mini-budget 
um, this decision to scrap the top rate of tax um, and on caps on bankers bonuses. Um, now, this was, I think, going to be roughly 40 billion, 45 billion pounds. Um, and there's also going to be some announced, some kind of extra uh, measures that would um, help uh, with the energy crisis. And so the, the, the bill of the budget was kind of spiraling out of control. Markets um, decided to soar on the on the pound, which collapsed and uh, reached parity, pretty much reached parity with the dollar for a while. Um, and at the same time, not only was it very unpopular with, with the bankers and the markets, it was also hugely unpopular with the electorate, and not just the kind of general electorate, even within the conservative electorate. To go back about what you're saying about the Britannian change and the kind of um, versus the one nation, um, you know, let's use the states as a leverage to, to harness economic growth. Um, Michael Gove came out the other day with this kind of very interesting conversation. And again, we're going back to the conversations you were talking about with Chamberlain. Um, Michael Gove, who again is one of kind of the architects of, of Brexit, and I think he kind of originally was more of a Britannian chain person and has kind of pivoted a bit more to a kind of one nation um, per figure. He says, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to argue that it is right to reduce welfare when we're also reducing taxes for the wealthiest. The 2019 manifesto was a one nation majority. People wanted Brexit done, but they also wanted levelling up. They wanted a conservative government that was dedicated to improving the lives of those who hadn't necessarily been traditional conservative voters and certainly were not among the wealthiest in society. And we've got to stay true to that tradition. And what I think is so interesting about it is, well, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's a kind of a, a shrewd assessment of frustration. Um, but what is so interesting about it is, correct me if I'm wrong, I was looking at it the other day, but it wasn't in her manifesto to when she was running to become um, um, the leader of the Conservative Party. And I think probably worse than that, it wasn't the manifesto that got conservatives a majority um, in 2019. Um, and so I, I look at it, the economic case for, for such a tax cut also looks very flimsy. I mean, the IMF came out saying it wasn't a good idea. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of lot of inflation. I'm not sure that's going to help on that front. Um, there's going to be a massive increase in spending because of the energy crisis. Um, and you get this kind of out of the blues well. It wasn't prepared. Now, I'm, I'm not a big believer in, you know, whatever policy is unpopular, politicians will say, oh, we didn't do the, the you know, we didn't lay the groundwork, we didn't explain the, 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 the reform, you know, and, and so now the people don't understand what's going on and so they're, they're unhappy with us. I, I don't usually buy with this, with this argument, but it is true that you need some kind of, some kind of um, communications campaign around it and you need to prepare it. This wasn't prepared. This, current, this basically came out of the blue. Um, so you have something which was not in a not in a, in a um, manifesto that was not in the conservative manifesto, and that wasn't prepared at all. That came out out of the blue, and I, I, I'm, it's, it's seemingly some people in a cabin had no idea about it. Um, but the question I have is how how did they decide to go forward with this idea? Well, I think it's important to remember that when you're running for the conservative leadership, you don't actually have to publish a manifesto. Mm. Um, because the only people you need to convince are 150,000 members of the Conservative Party. So what you have to do is go on the radio and go to hustings and talk about how you'll cancel corporation tax increases and lower the tax burden for hardworking Britons and decrease the influence of the state, and you'll probably win a majority, which is exactly what Liz Truss did. Um, 
in terms of the scale of the economic plans, the only warnings we really got were a couple of op-eds from Kwasi Korteng, who we knew was going to be her choice for Chancellor of the Exchequer. And the entire economic plan was supposed to be a pro-growth strategy of we cut taxes, we deregulate, and that will unleash Britain's economy. And that will get us out of the slump. Britain is the only economy in the G7 that is smaller now than it was before the pandemic. Everyone else has come back better. And from Truss's perspective, that's because the state has encroached into um, the economy too much. So the only way to push back on that is to deregulate, scale down the size of the state and cut taxes. Adam Tews made the point that this budget is a deliberate attempt to welcome back austerity by shrinking the size of the state, um, by forcing budget cuts in areas of services in order to fund tax cuts. Sure, why not? The real goal of it, at least I think, is to force the Bank of England to raise interest rates faster than they currently are doing in order to tighten the supply of money in the economy and use that to uh, to shrink inflation whilst also deregulating and cutting taxes. This is a carbon copy of the economic strategy employed by Reagan when he became president in 1981. Um, 1981, yes, I know he was elected in 1980, but yep. sworn in in 1981. Um, I think I've got yep. that date right. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Paul was going to raise rates to the highest level since the birth of Christ, as Helmut Kohl famously said, and the tax cut was the only way, way to price um, that burden out of people's pockets. So um, that's what Truss is doing. That's the economic strategy behind it. That's why it's been welcomed by so many people in libertarian economic think tanks in the UK and in the US. There was an article in the Washington Post today by the by an economic fellow at the American Enterprise Institute championing Liz Truss's economic plans. The thing that's been botched, as you said, is the rollout because it was no warning the fact that the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is a sort of fact checker and watchdog for government spending, didn't put out a forecast, which normally is consulted by the markets for guidance on reducing the debt burden, sort of made it seem like a, a shadow hidden budget. Um, and then one sort of thing that I should mention is that Quasi Quartet on his first day as Chancellor sacked the senior civil servant, Sir Tom Scholar, and the rumours that were that they were going to appoint a total outsider mm to that post, all of which added up to a government of amateurism and not one with a serious plan for government, which is why the panic was so substantial yeah. and why the global coverage of it was so yeah. significant. And so in the end, they did, they did famously um, did, did a U-turn on that. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Only on the Sorry? top bit, though. Only on like the sort of... Only on, only on the top Yeah. Bit. I, the, the, which from an economic standpoint isn't actually that significant. I mean, the damage is done from the commerce yeah. perspective, but it's only costing $2 yeah. billion. Yeah, and it's incredible because on the flip side, I was looking at the, the articles being written on Keir Starmer. Um, and it's an interesting case because he's been around for quite a while now, actually. And I think it's, it still feels like the jury's out on Keir Starmer. People st I'm still not quite sure what to say about him. And, you know, one month he's terrible, he's bland, he's uninspiring, and the next he's exactly what we need. Um, and 
so again, the conversation pivoted in a few weeks from, oh, he's bland and uninspiring. He's never going to get us to win anything. And now all of a sudden, he's exactly what we need, he feels like, for, for real government. Um, I mean, I have to say, though, if Keir Starmer gets, you know, the Labour com- comes back to power in the next election, I don't think this is a case of Keir Starmer, not Keir Starmer. I think this is basically a case of electoral suicide on a scale we've never seen before on, on the European continent. Um, I mean, at this point, uh, come on, Julian, let, let's, let, let's have fun. Let's forecast the election. Um, do, you see, do you see a way out for, for the Conservatives? Do you see a way for them to kind of at least significantly limit the damage? Um, not with the present leadership. So it's, Liz Truss isn't winning a campaign. I mean, I don't think it would be Will she do a campaign, actually, do you think? There's rumours of Boris being in the shadows, why... waiting for his moment to come back, but... Boris isn't coming back. The problem, the problem with... Bor- there's the argument from the, the pro-Boris faction, which is basically a bunch of people who've lost their jobs and now have a newspaper column um, and jobs in PR firms, is that the only reason they want Boris to come back is because he won one election. But if you look at when the polling decline started, it starts with his scandals. So the Conservative Party lost trust. I know there's a slight yeah. pun there. Because of Boris Johnson. Bringing Boris back doesn't change the trust problem in the Conservative Party. Delivering will change the trust problem. Um, and that's what trust has to do. If she can get through the winter, maybe she can cling on I mean, to... I mean, the next election... There's not going to be many good to, news coming yeah. up in the next few months. Let's face it. There's a massive inflation. No. There's, a, there's a humongous energy crisis coming no. up. I mean, it's not like she has much to look forward to over the next few months. It's not like there was the Olympic Games coming up or something. I mean, no, maybe England wins the World Cup, but at this point, I, I can't see anything. I can't see anything to to lift the spirits of a of a Brit. If 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 England wins the World Cup, I'm assuming you yes. win the football World Cup. Because they'll win the women's yeah. rugby world cup, but if they win the the football world cup, I think then you can probably you should put money down on the conservatives winning a majority because then it truly means anything is possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think because the election isn't two is isn't for another two years. Yeah. There's a possibility that they can get enough growth and inflation down in the next 12 months to say we went through the pain and it worked now trust us on the next step possibly i still don't think trust is the right messenger mm-hmm. for that i do think even though members of some people distrusted him because he's just a little bit too clever sunak probably would have been able to do that um tom tugendat actually had the highest marks from non-conservative voters um, he probably would have been mm-hmm. able to do that. But the chances of either of those two becoming prime minister are, well, as small as England winning the World mm-hmm. Cup. So it, if you're forecasting ahead, it looks like a, like a total reversal of 2019. I don't think it'll be that bad by the time December 2024 rolls around or whenever the election is. I don't think it'll be called early. I think if you're trust, you want to hold on as long as possible. Um, because the longer you're in office, the more you become to be seen as the prime minister. Um, and given the number of distractions, I don't think she quite has that yet. Um, 
on Starmer, I realize I haven't yeah. talked about him. I've only been talking about Tories. He's the interesting case. He's a post-populist mm. is what he is. Jeremy Corbyn was a populist um, elected in 2015, re-elected in 2016, um, and then finally removed in 2020. But Keir Starmer is a post-populist. He is His big scandal was potentially having beer and pizza over yeah. lockdown. It's an interesting moment for European politics if mm. he can win on a post-populist model for the centre-left. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Um, okay, well, I think that's a, that's a wrap. Um, there is no bonus content this week for our patrons. Our apologies. Um, we will be doing these only for the regular episodes and they'll be coming back next week. Um, thank you to all of our wonderful patrons, actually, who have been supporting us over the past few months. Um, I will thank uh, normally um, some of them, those who have allowed us to do so. Um, so I want to thank uh, Guy from France, um, Carol from London, and um, we'll need to cut this because I forgot. Okay, here's the list, yeah. Um, uh, Paloma, Henry from Sweden, Martina and Raphael, thank you so much for all your wonderful support. And sorry, and David, of course. David, who's been like, our oldest patron supporter. Um, so, so thank you to all of us, all of you, for your wonderful support. And uh, we'll be back next week.